We live in a world filled with darkness. And one of the great themes in John is about how the light has not overcome the darkness. But there are so many illustrations that we could think of today that still illustrate the darkness that surrounds us and how uh, evil hates good and evil calls what is evil good and what is good evil and so on and so forth. Uh, And evil does everything it can to hide the truth. I think one of the great places where we see that so clearly is in the world of politics. And really what we see today in politicians is nothing new from what politicians have been doing from the beginning. Indeed, the great rhetoricians in uh, the Greco-Roman world, um, their greatest triumph would be able to convince something, somebody of something that wasn't true. So they had whole schools to teach rhetoric, to teach how to speak and how to persuade people of things. And the goal was not to persuade people of truth, but just to persuade them of whatever they want by their rhetoric. And when we look at our contemporary uh, world and culture, the, the socio-political machine thrives in this world of rhetoric and of trying to get you to believe what it wants, not caring about truth, but just having an agenda and wanting you to follow them. I think uh, an illustration of that is what uh, Deborah and I were following in America uh, recently. There was a trial of a, of a young man who defended himself in one of the riots that went on uh, last year. His name's Kyle Rittenhouse, and his trial went on for three weeks. And this was a uh, whatever, wherever we all land on the political spectrum and wherever we all land on the riots and wherever we all, all land on things like self-defense and uh, gun rights and things like that, it was an interesting test case to see a, a, a person completely smeared for the last 15 or 16 months, whatever it was, by the media, indeed by the president himself, Joe Biden, as he, before he was elected president, um, smearing this, this 17-year-old boy. And really, a whole side of the political spectrum using this boy as a scapegoat um, for problems that the political spectrum itself caused. So we watched, we watched this, uh, this trial of this, this boy who was accused of, um, of murdering uh, two people and shooting another, the, uh, the, uh, the state, which was charging this boy, um, were calling these men heroes who, who this, this boy shot. But as it turns out, um, as we watched the evidence and we, we watched the, the trial unfold, it was, we could watch it on, uh, uh, on the Internet because they televised all of it, that even the state's own witnesses witnessed to this boy's innocence. It was, it was really unbelievable. Even, uh, even the last person who was shot testified on the stand that he pointed his handgun at this boy before the boy shot back in self-defense. And there's this scene where you see the prosecutor's hand is buried like this when their own star witness gave testimony to the truth. 
And uh, after three weeks and three and a half days of the jury deliberating all, all the facts, this, uh, this boy was exonerated uh, and was found not guilty on five or six charges, uh, five charges. But this boy basically was the, the scapegoat for an entire wing of politics. They didn't care that this kid would get locked away for the rest of his life and his entire life would be ruined because they had a greater agenda and they were using this boy to further their agenda. Because when you look at the facts, when you saw the trial, what we were told about this boy was not true. And if we still care about truth, wherever, whatever person is on a stand, we should never want to see somebody found guilty when they're innocent. And I would think that anybody that wants justice for anyone in this world would want to uphold the basic principle that if somebody is innocent, they should be treated fairly and not found guilty and not be slandered and lied about by politicians or lawyers in a courtroom. Well, how much more is that the case when we look at Jesus and we look at the evidence that John lays before us in this gospel, showing these signs of glory. He lays these, this evidence out before us so that we can make a decision, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And just like today, the Pharisees had a political social machine that they were running. Jesus was threatening the Pharisees' glory. The Pharisees loved glory. And what do they do to people that get in the way of their glory? They take them down. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they do whatever they can to take that person down. And we saw exactly that last week as Peter preached on Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The greatest of all the signs that were given in John in this book of signs in these first 12 chapters of John. And how do the Pharisees respond? They hold a national council and declare Jesus public enemy number one. And they resolve to put him to death. They go on a public smear campaign to take Jesus out and to bully anyone who might be on Jesus' side. But in the state of of this just utter depth of humiliation that Jesus is undergoing, John concludes this opening half of his gospel with witnesses that exalt his glory. And they show who he is. So as we make our way through John, if you look in the the back uh, page, inside page of the worship folder, you can see today that we are wrapping up the first section of John in this book of signs, or we've called it the signs of glory. And John, as it were, is putting us now in a courtroom and we can make up our own decision about what we think about Jesus in light of who the Pharisees say Jesus is and then what Jesus' signs Say who he is. And he's going to ask us, what do we think about it? So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at how the Pharisees humiliated Jesus. 
And then we're going to look at how Jesus is exalted in the depth of his humiliation. And then I'm going to ask you the question, what is your verdict? You're the jury here, and you get to decide. So let's look first at how the Pharisees humiliate Jesus. Our text today flows out of last week, and as I said, last week as uh, Peter preached at the end of his message, there's a national council held against Jesus. He's public enemy number one. They determined to kill him. The ultimate way of silencing a witness. But now we come in, and we come to chapter, uh, the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. We see that the Pharisees give public orders for his arrest. I'm going to show you six things they do to humiliate Jesus. And the first here is they give public orders for his arrest. In verse 57 of chapter 11, John says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So now the Pharisees' game is in full view of the public. They have made public announcement that if anyone knows where Jesus is, anyone knows his whereabouts, they must tell them so that they can arrest him. It's just like the putting the most wanted sign on the post office wall or, or publishing it today on, on social media or on the news. Jesus' face would be up on the 10 o'clock news. If anyone sees this man, deliver him to the chief priest. Tell the chief priest. So the Pharisees have publicly humiliated Jesus by announcing that he's an enemy of the state and that they are seeking to arrest him. Secondly, the second way they humiliate Jesus, they bribe a stooge. They bribe a stooge. In chapter 12, verse 4, while Jesus is dining with Lazarus and his family, Judas Iscariot is irate. He's mad that Mary broke and used this expensive perfume on Jesus. And John says in verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to it. And if we read this this passage in view of the parallel passage in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, we know that right after this, Judas goes to get money from the Pharisees for handing over Jesus, and they're glad to do it. So they bribe a stooge who's willing and ready to betray Jesus. Third, the third way they humiliate Jesus, they headhunt Lazarus. They headhunt Lazarus. Look there in verse 10. (laughs) Well, let's go in verse 9 to get a little context. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, 
but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. A great way to suppress a movement is to kill off those who are supporting it. And look at this great living, literally living illustration of the glory of Christ, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. And so they seek in a very extreme way to suppress the evidence. Fifth, fifth way they try to humiliate Jesus, entrenched unbelief. In other words, they refuse to look at the facts. They just refuse to consider the evidence. Look there in verse 37. When they, uh, the second half of 37, yeah. Uh, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. These Pharisees are so hardened that they don't care about the facts whatsoever. All they care about is bringing humiliation upon him. Sixth way that the Pharisees humiliate Jesus. Public bullying, public threats, public shaming. Public bullying, public threats, public shaming. Look at verse 42. Talking about the authorities. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So you have these authorities, even these authorities of the Jews that believed in Jesus. But because they feared man all the more and the threats that would happen if they followed Jesus, they would not, they did not have the courage to go through with it. But the Pharisees have put out a notice if you follow Jesus, we will put you out of the synagogue. And bear in mind that this is a shame culture. A shame culture. And I don't know as about Nigeria, and I don't know about Indonesia, if they are shame cultures or not. Um, not so much in the West, but in the Middle East here. Yeah, I'm seeing some nods. Yes. Um, so in a shame culture, that this would essentially be you being ostracized from the community and basically being declared you're a traitor to the community. And so that's what the Pharisees are doing. If you follow Jesus, you are a traitor to the state. You're an enemy just like him. You will be put out of the synagogue. So the Pharisees are publicly bullying, publicly threatening, publicly shaming anyone that follows Jesus. Now, when you see these tactics, public orders, bribing stooges, headhunts, expressions of jealousy, entrenched unbelief, um, I missed that. I didn't say that, did I? Number four. 
Sorry, I gave I I skipped over one. Expressions of jealousy, jealousy, verse nineteen. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They are upset because now the world's not following them; they're following Jesus, and now they're pouting. So that now you have six ways. When you look at this, the public orders for arrest, the bribing of stooges, headhunt for Lazarus, jealousy entrenched unbelief, refusal to look at the facts, public bullying. This is like the politician's playbook today. This is the world's playbook, isn't it? And I'm not intending to speak to one side or the other of the political spectrum. I think we could find illustrations of this on both sides at times. But look at this. Nothing has changed in the world, has it? Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Evil is still evil. Sin is still sin. And the way that evil tries to suppress good and tries to suppress Jesus and his people is exactly the same. You know, what kind of threats have you felt in recent days? Let's say if you do not openly advocate and cheer on the immoral social agenda that's going on in your workplaces. I know some of you feel that tension very strongly. And what's the threat? You'll be fired if you go along. How many times have you witnessed people that refuse to look at the facts of of truth? They refuse the, the facts. They're entrenched in unbelief. I recently watched a video um, of, uh, again, I'm a, as an American, I, I follow kind of American politics and things like that, but there was a video shown of, of states that have full control of, of all of the legislative wings um, of the state and still blame the other side for the problems. One political, One political party is blaming the other political party for the sides. And, uh, and one political party that is claiming it's for all these people and for all these rights are running states that are the worst violators of those people's rights. Where houses are most expensive, where the poor are taxed more than the rich. It's, it's shocking. And yet they have full control of these states. And so they say these things, but they're not looking at the facts. They say these things, they suppress the evidence because they want to get an agenda done. And how much more with God's people who are called enemies of the state? We're called wicked. We're called evil. Our, our desire to defend the rights of the unborn. We're called haters of women. And we could give a lot of other examples to it. So the Pharisees try to humiliate Jesus. But do they succeed? They, they really don't. And John wraps up this book now with seven examples of Jesus being exalted in the depths of his humiliation. Seven examples. And we'll look at those now. So we'll look at our second point, how Jesus is exalted in the depths of his humiliation. Number one, Lazarus' family 
Jesus is exalted by Lazarus's family. We see here in verse 2, they throw a great dinner for Jesus, celebrating what Jesus did for Lazarus. And Mary and Martha are there, and Mary, Martha is serving, and Mary takes this expensive ointment and perfume. John doesn't tell us how expensive, but this, this really lavish gift. She, she opens it up, and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. And not only that, she abases herself, she humbles herself by, by using her hair to, to wipe it up. This is, just, this is a great sign of, of honor and of self-abasement before Jesus. And again, all Judas can think of is his own pocketbook. But pretending to be an advocate for the poor. But we see this great sign of exaltation of this lavish gift of this humiliating oneself for Jesus in honor to him. Secondly, Jesus is exalted by the Jews' kingly welcome. As Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly for the Passover, we see there in verse 12 and following that the the people are crying out. The Jews themselves are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And even more than that, we see uh, one of the great Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. In Zechariah 9, which we read this morning, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus is exalted by Lazarus's family. He's exalted by the Jews who welcome him to Jerusalem, which is a great fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Thirdly, Jesus is exalted by the Greeks who seek him. I think this is fantastic. The, the, John loves irony, and he uses the Pharisees over and over again uh, as ironic foils to what Jesus is doing. Uh, in the last chapter that Peter had last week, Caiaphas predicts that one man shall die for the nation. Uh, Caiaphas is thinking that that means that uh, Jesus will die and then the Romans won't be mad at the Jews and won't threaten the state. But indeed, ironically, Caiaphas is witnessing to Jesus' substitutionary atonement for his people, one man dying for the nation. And here, the Pharisees give us a, a, another ironic moment when they complain. You, in verse 19, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then what's the very next thing John shows us? In verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are Gentiles. In other words, we see the Gentiles starting to come in. The Greeks are seeking Jesus. The whole world has gone after him. Fourth, Jesus is exalted by the Father's audible voice. He's exalted by the Father's audible voice. In verse 28, 
Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And to some, they thought they heard thunder. Others thought it was an angel's voice speaking to him. But Jesus' glory, the truth of who he is, is witnessed by the Father's audible voice. Yet here again, and he is exalted in it. Number five, Jesus is exalted by Isaiah's witness. In verse 38, as we go on, Jesus is even exalted by the Pharisees' unbelief because indeed that was foretold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior. Verse 37, Though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for I, Isaiah, again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So think about this for a moment. In Jesus' exaltation by Isaiah's own witness, John says that Isaiah saw Christ's glory. Remember in Isaiah 6 where John, excuse me, Isaiah 6 where Isaiah beholds the glory of the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And the cherubim are covering their their eyes and their faces. So he has this amazing vision of the throne of God. And John says, who was on that throne? Christ as the divine Son of God. Can you imagine that? Christ is there. I'll read it for you in Isaiah 6. In in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his seat, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the Lord goes on then to send Isaiah as a witness, but he says that as you go as a witness, I'm going to use you to blind. Blind the hard-hearted. And this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. Just as Jesus came to save his own, he also came to harden and blind his enemies. And that is Jesus' glory. A sixth way that Jesus is exalted is by the Jewish authorities themselves. In verse 42, despite this fact, as we just read, that many would be hardened and blinded. John says in verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. And of course, these authorities did not have the courage to go forward with it. They nevertheless, even they couldn't resist believing the truth, even though they were lacked the courage to admit it. 
Finally, seven, Jesus is exalted by his own final testimony. And in verses 49 and 50, Jesus speaks of his exalted estate and being sent by the Father. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has, has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. So here we have seven more witnesses of Jesus' glory in the depths of humiliation. And now John leaves us then with the verdict. We're going to come to the end of the gospel later on, and, and we're going to be asked the question again of what we think about this. But as we round off this first section of John, the question is, what do you make of it? What, is, what do each of us make of this? Are the Pharisees right? Are they justified in their actions to quell Jesus' uprising? Or is Jesus really is who he says he is? And is Jesus really is who John has portrayed him to be in this gospel? John carries, cares very much about signs and about evidence and about witnesses. So what do we make of all of this? I want to point you to a few last things in a, in a quick third point. What is your verdict? This is what Jesus says. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you care about true glory and true honor, not the temporal and vain glory of man, you will follow Jesus. And you will serve him. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Secondly, Jesus says, believe in me. Look at verse 36. Jesus says that while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. If you want true glory, and if you want true knowledge, you will follow Jesus and you will believe in Jesus. So if you think that Jesus is who he says he is, you have an obligation to follow him, to serve him, and also to believe in him. But if you believe Jesus is who he, who he says he is, you also have a great promise. Two, in fact, here. In verse 46, Jesus says, I come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You will no longer remain in darkness if you follow him. Even if the darkness seeks to overtake you, you will have the light of life in you. And then in verse 50, a second great promise, if you believe in him, and that's eternal life. 
Jesus' whole ministry was to give eternal life to his people. So wonderfully illustrated in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but then also will be illustrated in Jesus' own death and resurrection in his final hour, which we will see as we turn to his hour of glory. But there's also a promise for his detractors, those who don't believe Jesus. And Jesus says of them, they are judged already. Jesus says in verse 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. We know, as we read earlier, that because of Jesus' ministry and this hour of glory that he's now come to, that the ruler of this world will now be cast down. We know that the devil's people, that is the Pharisees, who are children of the father of lies, as they also carry on these lies. And that's true for those who carry on the devil's work today. They have been shown for what they are. These examples of how the Pharisees humiliate Jesus are still seen today in all sorts of ways as people try to quell the kingdom of God. The devil's people have been shown for what they are. But now here Jesus is exalted and exonerated by his people. And he's exalted even in the depths of humiliation. Indeed, even in the depths of his humiliation, the whole world has gone after him which is still testified today in this very room. The whole world has gone after Jesus. And the global south is booming with Christianity, even as the west seeks to deny its own heritage. So all that is left then, brothers and sisters, is will you believe in him now that you've seen these signs of glory? in this book of signs, in the first 12 chapters of John. Let's pray.